So isometrics certainly, you know, form uh, an important part of how we train because we can isolate joint angles that we deem important for maximizing strength adaptation. We get that motor unit recruitment response, but we don't necessarily get the same fatigue. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Ed Gannon came on the Pacey Performance Mastermind a couple of months ago alongside Ender King and Christian Thorborg, and they all chatted around preventing and rehabbing athletic hip and groin injuries. And Ed's knowledge of that area absolutely blew my mind. He was actually in an aircraft in an aircraft hangar, waiting to travel away with the the Sabers on an away trip, and he made time to jump in forty five minutes before takeoff and join the mastermind. So, like I say, his knowledge absolutely blew my mind. So it was an absolute no brainer for me to pester him and get him on a solo podcast. So. It's athletic hip and groin injuries that we discuss a lot in this episode, but we also have a little chat around monitoring neuromuscular status, which was one of Ed's recent publications that is now available, and also isometric training, which ties in with the reduction of hip and groin injuries, but also as a standalone point as well of how we can integrate isometric training into our performance sessions, strength and power sessions, yes, but also with our preventative work and rehab work as well. So this is an absolutely incredible episode with so much depth in the conversation from Ed. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to him and I know it's one that you'll really, really enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool, which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence 
and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, imeasureu.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Ed Gannon. Ed, thanks for coming on again, mate. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you again. Hi, great. Thanks, Rob, for having me on. Looking forward to having a chat. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. It's um, a month or two, three months, four months since we jumped on the Mastermind with Ender and Christian. But yeah. it was it was during that I thought, Christian's been on, Ender's been on, got to get Ed on. Because it went, it went really well and there was loads of great feedback on the hip and groin stuff. So it was um, it was a no brainer to to pester you and get you get you on the podcast. No, it's, this is uh, looking forward to, to coming on here, and it was it was great uh, chatting with Ender and Christian, and difficult to keep up with those two. But hopefully, I offered maybe a more of a practical, uh, you know, maybe a bit more of an applied side of things. But they're two incredibly smart people. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, no, it, it was great, and hopefully, you made the plane, didn't you? I did, yeah, I did, mate. I didn't miss, yeah. I, I got panicky there because our team manager appeared out of nowhere, and I thought he's chasing me up, but he, he wasn't. So we, uh, in, in all good time, it was it worked out well. Good. Just a bit of background on that. We did the mastermind. Ed was in the airport, just um, in a little little back room, just doing the mastermind in there. So it was uh, very much appreciated that you you made it happen at um, in no, difficult circumstances. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's the COVID year. You have to you know adapt, adapt and amend. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But Ed, if anyone doesn't know who you are, would you mind giving us a bit of a rundown on your background? And it's an, an interesting one and how you how you found yourself in uh, with the Sabres. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm the head of strength and conditioning for the Buffalo Sabres, which are a, a professional ice hockey team in America. We, we play in the, uh, the National Hockey League. Um, I've been here six years now. Um, my background is actually primarily rugby union, though. I worked in uh, professional rugby union for 11 years before coming over to uh, to North America. And I worked at Wasps, started off at Wasps, um, and then I went to Gloucester. And then I spent uh, seven years as a strength and conditioning coach at Leicester Tigers. And um, during that time, I, I did my PhD. And my PhD was all applied, uh, working with um, the professional uh, players at Leicester Tigers. So... It was a part-time PhD that I kind of spread over five or six years um, running kind of um, applied uh, training um, research projects with, with the players around strength, power development, looking at some hormonal markers and some um, post-activation potentiation uh, training structures. Um, so that's sort of my, my academic background. And then I sort of moved over in 2015 and uh, have been working as a strength coach here ever since. And... I don't want to go labor the labor the subject, but I'm always interested to to know how people like yourself get jobs in America. I know it's a very much a sought after thing for the Brits looking over to the states and and wanting to potentially jump over there. How did that happen for you? Um, there's no there's no clear sort of pathway uh, that, and I think it's a it's a you know frustrating answer for people to hear because there is no clear pathway. And um, my pathway was was very much actually through. The, the PhD and I was I had some contacts with with Gatorade uh, in Europe and working with um, uh, one of the physiologists who was based at Loughborough and um, he was kind of supporting me uh, with some of my research projects and he had a contact in North America that was looking to recruit in in ice hockey and uh, and that's how I just made a, a contact that way really and then sent the resume over and went through the interview process so uh, it was really just about having a contact um, through through the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. That, that's how I kind of came over here, really. Um, and obviously yeah, was... having the, the, the experience as a 
as a professional coach in a contact and a collision-based sport um, also sort of helped as well. Yeah, I spoke to Joe Club a couple of weeks ago and she explained her uh, transition over from, from the UK to the, to the, to the US. And ex not exactly the same with the gay trade link, but very much uh, got to know someone who knew someone else who was recruiting and it kind of came about that way rather than the traditional you know, send your, C send your CV in after seeing a, a job advert on online or on Twitter or something. And I know that's kind of obvious that these kind of things happen, but I suppose having real world examples of this kind of thing happening does, um, I suppose, hammer it home that that's how you do get these kind of jobs like, like you've got or Joe got. Yeah, I, I think from my, um, the, the, what I reflect on, on my process was really um, broadening your connections and broadening your, that the, the market of people that you interact with is very valuable. I know it's done a lot on social media nowadays, but for me, I was working for 10, 11 years full-time in professional rugby union, and I had links in rugby union, but actually doing the academic um, side of things as well with the, with the PhD, that, that opened up a few more doors to meeting different people in different environments. And combining those two kind of led to the to having more connections and then having more opportunities. So, so that really was would be what I would kind of recommend to people: making sure you have multiple avenues uh, and not just having kind of one focus, which might be your applied environment. Having multiple areas of academia or social media, and keeping those pathways open. When did you finish your PhD? Ed? Uh, two thousand and fifteen. I finished. Okay. I started in 2009, so it took me quite quite some time to get yeah, through it. Okay. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. I suppose industry-based PhDs are quite the, the thing now, but I guess in 2009 when you started, that was probably one of the first ones to go through that kind of thing. Was it quite a novel thing at the time? Um, it may or have not? been. Yeah, I haven't actually okay. reflected on that too much. Okay. Um, okay. I, I, I know I've had a couple of people contact me recently um, who are doing this now, who, who are who are conducting applied research with professional athletes as a full-time strength coach or as a full-time sports scientist. Um, and it just makes, it just makes sense. Uh, there's, a, there's not too much, you know, there's not a lot of research actually conducted in the applied setting with, with elite athletes. So if you do want to do something that's, that's um, research-based, it makes sense to try and go down that route and get a qualification out of it. And yeah, at the time in 2009, I actually started off on, a, an, on an MPhil with, at the University of Bath, so a research-based master's. And then I came to the end of that in 20, uh, 2012, something like that, and then just decided to carry it on and complete the, the PhD. So it, it, it was kind of, it wasn't, I started out in 2009 on a PhD. It started okay. out as a research master's because that's, that was more interesting to me than doing a taught master's. And then it just kind of evolved and continued until I, I completed the PhD. And the green card? Green card's uh, done? Uh, yeah, on its way. <laughs> hopefully just, okay, just waiting, way. waiting for interview now. So yeah, on its way. Okay, um, nice. Just waiting to uh, hopefully get back to the UK and, and complete that process. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you've got to come back here to do it to then go back? That's right, yep. Get back to the UK. Okay. So, uh, you know, COVID has sort of slowed a few things down there. But, you know, good to see the UK is opening up again. Um, yeah. I haven't actually been back to the UK now for about three years properly, so I'm looking forward to uh, to getting back and and seeing some people when I can get back safely and and uh, go through that process and then come back to the to America to start the season. Hopefully, how's that been? Been away from family and and things while you're in the US. Has that been a tough transition, mm. or 
reasonably easy for you in the family? Um, it's been tough. It, I think that's certainly something to consider if um, if you are you know a, a practitioner looking to to come abroad. Um, that you you know you make the decision. It's a great decision to come and ex- and uh, expand your career. Um, work in a different environment, whether that be working in a different sporting environment, but also a different culture, a completely different culture. I think it's a great opportunity and sport's fantastic because it gives you that opportunity. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go into sport. Um, but there is a compromise and the compromise is, is relationships with, with friends and family. Um, you know, I've, there, there are members of my family that I haven't seen for three years. And there are members of my family that, um, I've seen only once or twice um, nieces and nephew, you know, nephews and godchildren stuff like that. So um, that is a compromise that you make when you decide to come over. And obviously, the COVID situation really impacted us uh, last year. And, and my wife ended up sort of getting stuck in the UK and couldn't come back over. So we were separated for about eight nine months. Um, so it has oh, wow. been has been tough. But so I would suggest you know if you are someone that's coming over um, to a different country, that is that is a, a factor to consider. Um, but the, the, it is a huge payout from being in a different environment, being in a different culture, learning a different in professional environment and what, you know, how the medical team operates, how different strength and conditioning coach operate. Uh, that's been an incredibly, uh, valuable experience for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it's something I'm always interested in, like I said, with Joe and getting people who've who've had experience in different countries, different environments. It's always an interesting uh, little chat to, to hear about how them transitions happened and, and how it's kind of played out family-wise and personal life-wise and all that kind of stuff. So appreciate that, mate. I will say um, my wife's my wife's with me now, so that's all good. So we, okay. know, we, we, yeah, my wife's back in America and we, we you know, we live together uh, um, in Buffalo. So, you know, that's been a big support. She's been a, a huge support to me over the past six years for sure. Yeah. Okay, nice. So monitoring neuromuscular status in hockey, that's a, been, of int- been an interest of yours, which has led to a recent publication. What, why, this, why this topic? Why this topic of interest? And I suppose how has it led to the publications? And then we'll dive a little bit deeper into technicalities and stuff. Well, fatigue and neuromuscular fatigue, um, residual fatigue is a big factor for all professional team sports, as we know. We're always fighting fatigue. We're always trying to understand it so that we can then plan our training programs, plan our on-field or on-ice practice structures. But hockey really is unique because um, the the frequency of the game schedule, the travel, uh, really does limit your opportunity to... Uh, practice and to develop certain physical qualities because fatigue is always present. So it, it really was something that um, over the past six years we've tried to understand a bit more about both in the NHL level and the American Hockey League level, which is our, our affiliate team. And understanding the, the presentation of fatigue, the timing of fatigue in our training week and finding quality metrics that can um, give us more of understanding as to the, the neuromuscular status of our players at that point in time, we felt was something that was worth investing a lot of um, uh, time and energy with technology and uh, and looking at markers and then what that application is. Because in this sport, I think really understanding it and then trying to react to, to that with your training and recovery strategies, it has a lot of impact for this sport in particular. Was that something that you looked at in your time in the uk with with rugby actually not the, the schedule is so completely much. different but yeah no I, I would say my my time in rugby union was very much focused on 
enhancing physical markers. So, mm -hmm. you know, looking into adaptive physiology around how we improve RFD, late RFD, how we, you know, how can we uh, maximize um, strength adaptation, neural and morphological, um, you know, how can we improve the opportunity to transfer power training to the field. So very much the things that I was looking at in rugby union, particularly with, you know, going down the, the PhD side of things, I was looking much more at physical performance outputs, looking at very much uh, mechanical outputs like peak forces, rate of force developments, and the training strategies which improve those, those measures. Um, and then coming into ice hockey, um, I felt that looking now more at the, 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 the chronic, the acute, the chronic, the effects of fatigue and how we can identify these would be, would be a valuable thing to do based on the, the type of environment that, that hockey is. So coming to the hockey environment, this is a, something that you're interested in. You think it'd be valuable to look into this area because of the nature of the game and the nature of the schedule. Where did you start? What was the first part of call for you to dive into this area? The, the first part of call was um, was playing around with counter movement jump testing primarily okay. and um, identifying uh, a, a basic strategy and and a time in the week where we felt we could start to get some reliable data that gave us a bit of an indication of of where our players were at and um, and so uh, we we started to just implement a protocol after the day off and. We decided to, you know, we identified that this would be the best time where we can see at least there's some control after the fatiguing stimulus, which is the game. So we have a day off, and then we come back into the training environment. And this is the starting point for most, you know, fatigue assessments is trying to identify in the week where you can get a fairly reliable, valid measure um, from a counter movement jump that you can maybe act upon because then you have the preceding week ahead um, where you might be able to manipulate some some or modify some variables to either maintain or reduce, maintain outputs or reduce the effects of fatigue. So that was a starting point, really, introducing a weekly testing schedule. So did, does that change based on how many games you play in a week? Because I know that it's, the schedule's crazy. And how would that be different in another environment with more of an elongated schedule of like a Saturday to Saturday versus multiple games in the week? Yeah, so... Um, in the ice hockey environment, it's it, it's really difficult to um, to collect data and then act upon it because we're often uh, practicing the day before a game, so uh, that limits the application of, often of what you can do um, from a training perspective. So the information is very much more built around how can we manipulate rest, recovery, sleep, nutrition, those types of, of strategies. Um, and maybe I'll talk a bit more about this in, you know, as we go forward, but mm. adding in the, the metric in conjunction with some on-ice um, accelerometry variables to give us a bit more of a deeper understanding as to what the level of fatigue is. Um, and then it may get to the point where can we do we have to manipulate some of the, the reps on the ice during a practice session. So um, in ice hockey, when we collect the data, we have a very short time and short time period to act upon it. Uh, and we have maybe a limited amount of, of things mechanically that we can change to try and pull them back from the brink. But, you know, cumulatively as the weeks progress and we can start looking at it more frequently, regardless of how the game schedule is, then we can hopefully try and change more, more kind of variables at a macro level, such as rep number on the ice if we have to, 
um, or the focus of the, uh, the gym-based sessions. If you've got more of a longer period of time, like a rugby union, then you can start to identify a little bit more of what the loci of fatigue might be. So if you're testing you know, the team 24 or 48 hours after a game, you know, you might be witnessing fatigue which manifests more in the physical output kind of area. Um, but that might subside as if you tested them midweek where you might see fatigue manifest more from a stretch shortening cycle perspective. So it might actually be useful testing team sport athletes who have more of a week-to-week type structure with games, maybe midweek where you get to see a bit more of the residual effects of fatigue from that Saturday game. And that might influence then how much... Um, how much plyometric work you might do the following day or how much speed acceleration agility work you might do leading into the following Saturday game. So, so really it's about understanding what your weekly structure is when you add the, the sort of fatigue measurement into the week and that will dictate the type of fatigue that you're looking at. So we'll have a little chat in a minute about how you change things and what that actually looks like. But from a protocol point of view, what does, what does that look like? <clears throat> What's the, pro- the the CMJ protocol for you, uh, so, Sabres? So the paper that we published, we were actually utilising um, linear position transducers. So we were using GymAware. And it's always a counter-movement jump with a, a dowel, so we remove the, the effects of arm swing. So we're just isolating the movement pattern. And, um, and the athletes, we performed the study actually in the American Hockey League where we have more of a traditional structure down there, which is why the data was so so clean and publishable. So we have more of a, um, uh, a structure where on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, we might have practice and then they're playing games Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. So they may be playing two or three games a week, but we have more of a consistent weekly structure and earlier in the week are our practice days. We have a day off um, on the Sunday, for example, and then we come into the week on the Monday. So that's where we would be performing the testing in that environment. In the National Hockey League, it's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot different. And the, the results that we get, we have to always contextualize based on the game before, the game schedule, and where we are in the week. So it's a little bit more muddled. Still useful, though. But the protocols that we have been employing are a basic counter-movement jump with a linear position transducer. And the markers that we, we break it down into are we look at a physical performance output, which is a jump, which is jump height for us. We'll look at a kinematic output. So... The, uh, the sort of the the measure of the move, the um, the output from the movement, so things like peak velocity, average velocity, uh, and we'll also importantly look at a movement strategy output. Mm-hmm. So, um, how did they perform the the movement to get to the jump height that we're seeing? And that for us was dip. Um, so that was our protocol that we employed, and we employ it throughout the whole season. Every week, our athletes will go will go through that. Um, we're currently transitioned or have transitioned into utilizing force plates. So the protocol is exactly the same without, we will um, we'll use uh, hands on hips instead of a dowel and the bilateral force plates give us a lot more information because we can look at uh, factors to do with symmetry left to right. We can look at more uh, kinetic measures such as braking force and propulsive forces, but we still will stick to the same principle of what we act upon. We still look at jump height we still look at a measure of movement strategy or eccentric functioning, and we'll look at a velocity as well. So even though the, the technology is different, we'll still assess and analyze the same variables that we deem to be important for highlighting fatigue. 
so is, is there any other ways that people may have opportunity to measure neuromuscular fatigue barring the the two that you've just mentioned linear position transducer and force plate yeah if so if so mm. what are the pros and cons of of those options so obviously force platforms are the most expensive um then working back you're looking at linear position transducers which can be expensive as well uh, but at the very basic level i think contact mat assessments are still very very useful because we you you want to be looking at a movement strategy measure because this is this has been proven now to be the most sensitive metric for neuromuscular fatigue because fatigue manifests itself particularly um, in the later sort of days, 48 to 72 hours after um, the fatiguing stimulus or the game, manifests primarily as a, as a reduction in stretch shortening cycle functioning. Um, so very much like a, neuro, a neural effect of, of fatigue, um, reducing muscles, tendon stiffness, these type of factors. These factors um, need to be identified and you're not going to identify that necessarily by just looking at a performance output like jump height or power output or force output, which is often why people, when they measure a CMJ, you know, 24, 48 hours after a game of rugby, they're like, oh, your power's back. It looks good. So we're not fatigued. Well, actually, you're not looking at, at the, the variable, which, which is actually demonstrating the, the true effect of neuromuscular fatigue, which, which can be a an east and you know disruption to eccentric control so going back to the most basic form of, of of this a contact mat gives you contact time and flight time it gives you a measure of jump height so you can use um, a measure such as a modified rsi which is uh, jump height times contact time now that composite measure will give you a performance output an indication of the performance output and it will give you an indication of the movement strategy, the movement behavior. So if you don't have you know, extravagant funds, but you can afford a basic contact mat, the contact mat will give you um, exactly what you need to identify the residual effects of fatigue during you know, multiple time points after a game, because it can tell you performance output and it can tell you, uh, it can reflect the capacity of, of movement behavior to be altered or maintained. Just to confirm, the RSI mod, how does that differ from just typical RSI? Um, I believe that the, the RSI modified um, is, is a measure of jump height um, times by contact time. And RSI, yeah. standard RSI, is the depth, the drop depth um, yeah. with the contact time, normally performed from a drop jump. So slightly different. And the reason why the modified RSI is valuable for movement strategy is because it uh, it contains both that composite measure of output and the contact time being the, the, the variable that, that sort of reflects the behavior of the eccentric movement. When you mentioned the accelerometer variables that may play into this uh, neuromuscular status assessments or understanding, what kind of things are you looking at accelerometer-wise on ice? Yeah, so very different in, ter in terms of my environment with um, indoors, on ice versus what you can do um, outdoors with, with GPS measurements. So from my perspective, what we can currently measure with a GPS system is a measure of volume, so on ice load. And we can measure, um, on, you know, we can measure intensity with that volume by on ice load per minute. 
So these are our two key kind of, of factors which can give us understanding of uh, acute load and chronic load. And combining, um, combining our counter-movement jump output such as dip or depth with jump height, um, converting them into whatever you know, system you use to look at thresholds, we utilize Z-scores. Um, so certain Z-scores have a threshold of which we might highlight a red flag. We can combine that with looking at on-ice load metrics, so over the course of a week versus um, what the standard would be for our athletes as a week. So we can look at whether there's an acute spike in, in volume. If there's a flag from that, again, we Z-score these, and we can combine that with the CMJ data that indicates that maybe we need to take a deeper look. And then, of course, we can overlay this with uh, the acute to chronic ratios uh, based off of Tim Gavitt's research that can also give us a flag based off his threshold. So the value of combining um, gym-based data from, say, something is very basic like a counter-movement jump, as long as you select the right variables to dictate, um, to give you a, a more of a sensitive understanding of fatigue, layering them on a weekly flagging basis with accelerometry measures um, can give you a, a bit of an understanding as to whether you need to look deeper into uh, an individual athlete's fatigue status and whether you need to act. Um, now, we're, we're starting in ice hockey now to move into um, the areas where soccer and rugby and field-based sports have been, have been in for, for many years, where we can go deeper into the data of external load metrics. So we currently are looking at the macro with volume and, and intensity measures, but now we can start to go a little bit deeper from local positioning systems, and we can start to look at max velocities, we can start to look at accelerations, change of direction frequencies and intensities. It's in its early stages, but we're moving towards that. So the future really is for, for, for our environment and indoor base sports like basketball, and ice hockey is to start layering the gym-based metrics of fatigue to see if these are having an influence uh, during games when we're collecting information about speed, velocity, um, work done at certain speed zones, then the frequency of accelerations and decelerations, and whether if we're seeing a flag from the, the counter-movement jump, if we're getting some measure of fatigue that appears, what kind of an influence is that having with our external load metrics during a game or during practice and having thresholds to link these together to then start to make decisions about how we might manipulate their program. And this is being done to a very high standard, I think, in Australian rules football. There's research that's been published about identifying fatigue from a CMJ with a composite measure, which is flight time to contraction time, um, and then seeing how that influences um, running economy during a game of Australian rules football, um, the work done at certain speed levels, and the frequency of excels and decels. So that's what we want to be moving towards. We identify this in the gym. How does it impact how our athletes are performing from a movement behavior perspective? Just coming back to your counter-movement jump assessments, I'm going to ask you the $64,000 or $64,000 question. Oh, oh. At what point are you intervening? What's the flag? What's the flagging system that you mentioned there that indicates that, okay, that's that needs more investigation or that needs a conversation mm -hmm. or that may ultimately need some sort of alterations in, in training? 
So where we're currently at is um, we'll utilize a, like I mentioned, the three primary things that we can hang our hat on right now are the, the, um, the dip or the depth of the jump. Um, we can look at the on-ice load from a weekly perspective relative to the average over um, the course of the past three months. So what, what do they normally do in a week and where, where are they currently at rolling? And then we look at our acute to chronic um, on-ice load um, ratios. So those are our three tools at the moment and we want to get more. But um, I'll look right now at when, when we drop below a certain Z score. So around about one standard deviation below below the mean, but we're looking at around about 0.8 minus of a Z score, we get a flag. And it's it's sort of, you know, based on the best kind of information or thresholds that we can translate into, into our data. So that will give us a flag for an individual. So it's all based off the individual's value. So it's relative to what their, their um, change th threshold will be. It's not done at the group level. And then we can obviously do the same thing with on ice load on a weekly basis and the acute to chronic. If, if we get just a flag with the, the jump score, um, but we're fine with our external load metrics for the week, then that's just a conversation of how are you sleeping, you know, how, what happened this morning to, to, to put you in a state where we're seeing a little bit of a, a neuromuscular compromised position. If we have nothing else that suggests that they're struggling with the volume of, of skating load, or that from an acute to chronic perspective, their preparation is sufficient for what they're currently performing, then it will just be maybe we just manipulate some things in the gym. We might, um, we might reduce some of the, the higher intensity work and maybe focus on things which might not be as metabolically costing. If we start to then have multiple flags where we've got um, a red flag from the Z score for the um, weekly load and or we get a... A, a red flag from the acute to chronic ratio, you know, above 1.3 is an example. And we're starting to see that they're doing too much. They haven't done enough. They're not prepared for this volume of work um, or that we're, you know, we're, we've spiked up their volume too much this week. And we, we're seeing that they are from a very, you know, gym-based criterion measure of, of uh, neuromuscular functioning that they've got a flag from their CMJ. That's when we need to start intervening more with, maybe some of the work that they're doing on the ice. And that's definitely the last resort. And we'll never tend to, we'll never want to pull guys off um, practicing, but having great relationships with coaches, this is where this is really important. And we're very much in a position where you can manipulate how much work an athlete does by you know, increasing their work to ratios of certain drills that we know are taxing reducing maybe some of the work they might do after the practice session. So reducing some of the extra um, technical work that they might be performing. So subtle manipulations in the volume and intensity of work um, on the ice during practices might bring us back and put us more into a, a homeostatic um, space and allow them to perform at a higher standard. So that's kind of like the, 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 the flag system and the types of ways we might intervene with you know bringing this athlete back into more of a um, a neuromuscular balance perspective and reducing the the, the load uh, that might push them over the edge and increase their risk of a of a soft tissue injury. For someone that's just getting into this area, and you've mentioned it before, and it might just be a confirmation of what you what you mentioned before with RSI. But would you recommend RSI as a good play or RSI mod to? for first place to start for people trying to try trying to understand 
neuromuscular fatigue and neuromuscular status? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. I, so going back to one of your original questions, uh, our first place of starting was that was was like jump height and uh, power outputs. Um, and I would say if you are just starting out with this and you're utilizing this tool to address fatigue, it's different if you're looking to see, is this guy powerful? Is he more powerful than, than someone else? Or has he improved in response to our training protocol, our strength and power protocol? That's different. Then you, can, then you want to be looking at a performance output and mechanical output. But if you're looking at it from tracking neuromuscular fatigue chronically over time, then you're, yeah, your starting point, in my opinion, a very good starting point is the composite measure of um, modified RSI because it gives you a blend of both. One of the reasons why we did go down this route is because we did start off years ago by just looking at power output and jump high. I'm like, wow, you know, these, these guys are recovering fast. This is great. <laughs> and I'm like, well, how can this be? Because we, you know, we're playing four or five games a week at times. Um, we go through a crazy period in the schedule in ice hockey where we're traveling across time zones and coming in and, you know, 24, 48 hours later, the guys are not crossing any thresholds with their power outputs but we weren't looking at necessarily the thing that was reflecting or sensitive enough to demonstrating the full understanding of, of how fatigue manifests itself. Um, and so that's what led us to looking at more of the, um, the movement strategy side of things. So we're just going to take a very, very quick break in the chat with Ed. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two of this episode, we have a little chat, well, a long chat around isometric training. And isometric training, not only from a preventative rehab point of view, but isometric training from a performance point of view. And we reference Alex Natera, or Ed references Alex Natera's work in this area. And it's someone that I have conversed with a lot on this. So it's a superb, part two coming up with Ed. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is a global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military and workplace health. Fusion Sport's data management and analytics platform, Smarterbase, is designed to provide elite human performance organizations with a one-stop shop solution for the holistic management of their teams. Highly configurable and capable of allowing the integration of other systems and wearables into its operations, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the world's most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, Australian Institute of Sport and US Soccer. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. 
This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports is a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid, and reliable athlete assessment. For the first time ever, you can assess metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics, and speed and agility, all with a single wearable sensor. Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams, and athletes to make data-driven decisions. The technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at Output Sports where you can schedule a demo. And now back to the episode with Ed. So we'll dive into some of the topics that we that we covered in the Mastermind with Ender and, and Christian around reducing hip and groin injuries. Obviously something that's prevalent in ice hockey given the nature of the, the sport. But in terms of screening for hip and groin injuries, what's your what's your thoughts on that, and what do you guys implement at the at the Sabers, and potentially given a, a if you can um, uh, thoughts on how people may th- not necessarily what they might do, but how they might think about it in other sports as well. Yeah, uh, this is this is one of the, the the big benefits of moving over into ice hockey is looking at a very much a different uh, biomechanical requirement. And skating certainly provides that when you're looking at, at sports like rugby or soccer, where you know we're used to running mechanics and cutting mechanics, and, and ice hockey has a, a very different profile mechanically from for skating. So yeah, we get a lot of um, athlete, we get a lot of hip and groin uh, pain and issues. Uh, so from a screening perspective, and this has evolved over quite a few years, the the main things that we look at on a very frequent basis, and I can break down how frequently in, in a bit, we want to look at um, identifying pain provocation first and foremost so uh, we want to identify whether we're getting any pain with certain movements we want to look at range of motion Um, we want to see if we're getting any inhibition with certain ranges of motion around the hip Uh, we want to look at symmetry with ranges of motion we want to identify if we're getting any imbalances with hip range of motion left to right and um, we want to look at some force thresholds so are we seeing any strength imbalances and are we seeing any imbalances with certain strength ratios? So those are kind of the key, the key areas that we look at. Um, and in terms of the actual methods, the, the, the real fundamentals are squeeze testing, adductor squeeze testing. And we'll utilize about 60 degrees of hip flexion. The literature published is, is around 90, 45, and zero degrees. And our two kind of go-tos are 60 degrees hip flexion and zero degrees hip flexion. So taking our athletes into longer lever positions um, and identifying, one, if we get any any um, pain. pain provo- uh, if we do get pain, then it's a red flag for 
some intraarticular hip dysfunction or maybe some soft tissue dysfunction in the adductors. Um, with those measures as well, we were able to look at force outputs and we utilize certain technologies that, that give us um, force outputs, just peak forces when we're doing squeezes at 60 degrees and squeezes at zero degrees hip flexion. And there are numerous tools you can utilize for that, but these are, these are really fundamental uh, um, metrics for us to understand. Do we have dysfunction? Do we have lower force outputs? Are we de you know, do we have inhibition? And do we have pain? So that's, uh, that's definitely a big starting point. Um, we can also look at um, ratios as well. So we can look at adductor to abduction ratios. And this is, this is a really well-published um, uh, marker and something that is really useful in all sports. Uh, Christian Forberg has sort of suggested, in, particularly in soccer players, that you want a ratio around one for healthy hips. And we've seen in, in ice hockey research that anything below 0.8 of an adduction to abduction squeeze ratio at around about hip flexion uh, at uh, 90 degrees is indicative of adductor risk uh, or hip and groin injury risk. So if the adductors are not strong enough uh, relative to, to the abductors with a ratio of around one from a Newton output, then that's a red flag. So, so these are sort of key measures that we should be utilizing on a regular basis um, to identify risk factors as well. The other thing that we have to be looking at are uh, ranges of motion around the hip. So we, we need to look at strength, we need to look at um, symmetries, we have to also look at ranges of motion. And hip internal range of motion is critical for ice hockey players, um, and so is external rotation. If we drop below a certain hip internal rotation, around about 30 degrees, it's very indicative that there's something pathological going on inside that hip joint that could predispose them to injury. And this is definitely a, a field test measure that, that you can implement on a very frequent basis because it's not invasive, has a low, it doesn't have a real metabolic cost. So identifying um, internal to external range of motion, active and passive is really important as well because what an athlete can generate from a passive stretch or a passive test might not be the same from what they can actually initiate when we're active, when we're asking them to actively develop internal range of motion space and again we want that ratio to be as close as possible to one between active to passive on hip internal and external rotation so if we don't get that that's a red flag and if we drop below a certain degrees at hip internal rotation that's a red flag as well the other sort of area one last area really that we can measure that's objective and i think is important and a lot of this sort of stems from from ender's research around intersegmental control is looking at ankle range of motion, uh, ankle dorsiflexion, the terminal force transducers, the ankle complex, really important for how we translate force up through the kinetic chain and through the hip. If we've got dysfunction there, if we've got poor range of motion, particularly with our ice hockey players who spend so much time in a, at a fixed mm. position in the hockey boot, then that's also a risk factor for us as well. And a lot of the players that I have who have hip and groin problems, whether it be an intraarticular hip issue or if it be an adductor strain, they have poor control around the ankle, poor range of motion around the ankle. So that's another area that I think can be implemented pretty easily into an applied environment. So are some of these, what you've mentioned there, implemented on a daily basis as a, as a monitoring tool? And if so, which, which ones? Yep. So certainly anything that's range of motion oriented okay. can be implemented on a daily basis. 
And with our players who we have red flagged for risk around hip and groin um, injury or have pain or dysfunction, very much on a weekly basis, uh, you know, two, three times a week, we'll be looking at checking those those ranges of motion, particularly after a game to see if we're getting any inhibition. I, I think from a, a squeeze, a force production perspective, you know, it's really down to how often you can safely implement those uh, those strategies. At the NHL level, it's very difficult for us to get our athletes through that type of testing as often as we would like. I certainly try and aim to bring that type of testing in um, at the end of, of my season phases. So I normally get to periodize my season into four to five blocks based on travel, schedule, natural breaks within the season. And normally when we come to an end of that block, it coincides where we might have a couple of extra practice days before we have another game. So that would be when I try to bring in more, more of my neuromuscular force testing like groin squeezes, um, adduction to abduction ratios. So as frequently as you can safely bring those into your program, if you're working in an environment that's a Saturday to Saturday, it can just form part of your um, strength training um, stimulus. You know, it fits into that testing equals training, training equals testing paradigm, which we all like to sort of try and um, emulate, but it's very difficult to. But, you know, you have more freedom in that way. I, I think that in my training program, isometrics form an incredibly vital component of, of how I maintain motor unit recruitment at various lengths. So if you have more time in the week and you can bring out your testing devices to just do the same type of measure, that, the same type of movement that you would do with the test anyway, you might as well click some numbers on it. So you know, if you have that freedom, you should definitely be doing that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how often I would, would bring that type of measurement in, you know, as often as I can, but for me, it probably happens four times, five times a season, including, you know, pre-season testing. Is there anything additionally that you would do isometric wise over and above the same positions that you want to test and use that as the training stimulus as well? Yes. Yeah. So, okay. and I, I, this season's, this season has been a particularly interesting one from a learning perspective because, you know, whilst the NHL season is difficult and a high game frequency anyway, this year has been even more condensed. So we were operating around about a game every 1.4 days this year. Um, so we really were, were tight for time. So yeah. we, you know, that, as you can imagine, that limits how, how much heavy isotonic training you can perform because there's a metabolic cost of that. There's a big central aspect of that as well. We don't want to keep compounding fatigue, but we also want to maximize strength and maintain strength as best we can. So isometrics certainly you know, form uh, an important part of how we train because we can isolate joint angles that we deem important for maximizing strength adaptation. Uh, we can do multiple um, overcoming isometrics, build up time under tension. We get that motor unit recruitment response, but we don't necessarily get the same fatigue. We don't get that same metabolic cost. We don't get that same residual effect that might carry over into the days that follow. So it's a really valuable stimulus for us in, in the environment I work in. So yeah, with, with the adductors, we're always trying to inject an isometric stimulus where we can take them into ranges that we deem to be at risk. And you don't necessarily have to go in with super maximal overcoming isometrics or ballistic isometrics, but certainly yielding isometrics where we develop more time under tension at those longer muscle lengths are very valuable. So we can 
take our athletes into positions where we may be um, we may be working more on the descending limb of the force length tension relationship. The area where we deem them to be at greater risk, where we might not have as good a, a motor unit recruitment um, and activation potential, and we can we can take our guys into uh, time under tension. So exercises like Copenhagen's um, are really valuable for us. Um, we can do long lever um, side plank ISO holds, and um, at times, if I can manipulate smaller coach-to-player ratios, we can do manual isometrics as well. So they, they certainly form a cornerstone of my training program. And what's great about isometrics as well is that there is evidence to suggest that um, there are a little bit of up and down carryover within sort of 20 to 40 degrees of the, the joint that you're isolating. So you do get a bit of carryover. So you, know, you can work multi-joint angles but you can also be sure if you do work multi-joint, you have a little bit of, um, of activation up and below that specific angle you're working at, then you're covering a lot of bases in terms of activating muscle fiber at different length tension aspects. Um, so from an injury resistance perspective, particularly around the adductors, really valuable. But also I, I use them as well for sagittal-based unilateral isometrics for potentiation combined with, with dynamic movements like a complex um, as part of our training protocol to maximize strength and improve power. You mentioned the two types of isometrics. Could you just explain them? I've, I've asked everyone who's come on and discussed isometrics, Danny Lum, uh, Alex Natera, the yielding and overcoming just, just well, to... Alex Natera is certainly a lot more, a lot more intelligent <laughs> in this side of things than me, but I, I guess I'm just trying from a basic perspective, overcoming isometrics, um, require producing force against a much more of a fixed position so your traditional isometric mid-five pulls your isometric squats against a bar that's fixed in place and these types of isometrics we're trying to generate force as hard and fast as possible so we're actually utilizing more of a rate of force development component and we're looking to try and get to peak force as fast as we can so it's a very much a very high intensity um, neural stimulus that increases motor unit recruitment, increases firing frequency, uh, and then promotes muscle synchronization at that fixed joint angle. So um, very good for maintaining force production and rate of force production um, at those fixed positions. Overcoming, uh, sorry, yielding isometrics are where we, uh, we might not be using something fixed in place. So we might be maybe using like a manual-based approach um, or we're using a surface where there might be a little bit of give, um, so there might be like a quasi-eccentric, but where the intensity isn't as high, so we're operating more around 70% of maximal voluntary contraction, but we're increasing time under tension. So the time under tension might be more around 30 seconds. Um, so with that, we get motor unit recruitment, we may go through the size principle a little bit more, um, and these have been sort of um, suggested because we have a greater mechanical tension and time under tension that there might be a bit more of a, a hypertrophic response with this type of training. So two, two slightly different ways of utilizing an isometric, one that has more of a, a higher neural component, one that may have more of a, a mechanical time under tension component and maybe a bit more of a morphological component. Um, and But we still have to accumulate a significant amount of reps and sets and time under tension with both. So if we're doing the overcoming and we're utilizing five seconds, we want to be targeting a total 
um, exercise time of around about 30 to 40 to 50 seconds of work. So multiple, multiple sets of five seconds. And with the yielding isometrics, we want to be getting in around the, the sort of 150 to 180 second time under tension work. So multiple sets of 30 second contractions. Uh, and that's kind of my opinion on it. I'm sure there will be people that have a different approach as well. No, that's great. I mean, you mentioned the complex in that as well. How would that look program wise? So I would, um, I like to, to drop in uh, complex sets in season with my athletes in this environment because I have very limited time and I want to maximize motor unit recruitment, uh, muscle force production, but I also want to utilize that in a dynamic manner as well. So I want to make sure that we're able to stimulate um, force production quickly. And I might only get one one exposure a week. So doing a complex set with isometrics achieves achieves that as best as it can for me. So I'm not, and I'll use an overcoming isometric for these. So we'll use mid five pulls at multiple joint angles, single leg, and we'll combine that with um, something like you know um, a single leg box jump, or we'll do some um, frontal plane isometrics where we'll be we'll be doing a a drive. In a, in a kind of a, a lateral lunge position. And then we'll superset that with like an explosive um, skater plyometric. So we're getting the, the muscle recruitment. We're hopefully stimulating as much mo high threshold motor unit recruitment and type two fiber as we can with the, with the isometric. We then go through a rest period and then we'll hopefully utilize the potentiation mechanism to improve a task specific um, motor pattern such as a, a skater plyometric or you know if we're doing sagittal plane a jump or a, a sled drive that type of training and that's that's what I'll, I'll staple within season when I'm very time limited and I can't separate strength and power training so that would all, they would always replicate each other in terms of joint angles being used and, exactly and movements yeah okay. so one of the key the key things about yeah about complex sets and, and muscle potentiation is you really have to re be replicating the, the same biomechanical pattern with the explosive exercise that's being initiated with the preconditioning stimulus. Um, otherwise, you're not going to get the necessarily get the true benefit from the uh, the neural or the the sort of the mu the muscle mechanical uh, the phosphorylation of sort of myosin heavy light chain activation that type of response from potentiation. You're not going to maximize that if it's a completely different movement pattern. Mm -hmm. I had, a, I had a question down here and I'll make sure I, I get to it. And that's around the issues with the boot, the fact that fixing this boot for every 1.4 days for a, for a <laughs> yeah. full game. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you get around that? How do you, yeah, that's obviously a, a big ish, issue for you guys. How do you manage that? Movement. Movement okay. is absolutely key. And, you know, one of the things that when I have young prospects, uh, one of the things that we always want to try and develop with our athletes is quality movement mechanics through um, sagittal and frontal plane sort of plyometrics and dynamic movements. You know, um, one they're great for controlling um, force distribution around the hip. They're they're great for maintaining good postural alignment and lumbo pelvic control. But it's also good for increasing um, reactivity in the calf complex, getting range of motion through the calf, making sure that. Um, we're maximizing that ability to generate and translate force through that terminal force transducer, the calf complex. And, you know, you're right. Hockey players spend all their time in a boot 
and a lot of uh, historically, uh, not so much now, but historically, a lot of hockey players did not come through a, a training background in their younger days of uh, multi sports and multi movement, and in, you know, improving the mechanics of uh, you know side shuffling and skipping and cutting and landing and that type of thing. So, I make sure that all of our warm ups um, will always have. A drills, um, B drills, you know, frontal plane karaoke's and shuffling. Um, we do a lot of wall drills in there as well. So anything where we're just there's plyometrics at varying levels, but cyclical plyometrics to maintain functioning of the the calf to the knee to the hip and transferring forces. Really important for hockey players in season to make sure that we're we're utilizing those training tools as a preactivation and for just maintaining health around joints. For someone that would be unfortunate enough to pick up hip or groin injury, ongoing issues, what's your process to keep them guys on the ice? Um, so we get a lot of those guys. So, you know, we'll, we'll probably have throughout the course of the year, you know, easily, and this sort of again ties in with Christian's sort of research with the Swedish hockey players, 50% of, of players throughout the year will, will, will complain of hip and groin pain. But only about 25% of those guys may lose time from, from, a, you know, from a hip and groin-based injury. So you know, 50% of those guys are able to manage uh, without having to have a time loss injury. And how we, we try and do that, it's just basic communication from level one. Um, understanding pain, understanding the loci of pain, and we've got, you know, having we've got great medical staff here, and the communication stream is really open. So I'll I'll understand straight away if we have an athlete who is experiencing, who's maybe got a flare up of pain, where that's located, and the strategies are often: can we utilize an isometric to try and reduce inhibition and pain around an area? So is pain of a sufficiently low level enough where we might be able to work within a, a joint angle around that issue? Because isometrics also have a great analgesic effect at reducing pain and making sure that we don't have any inhibition, neural inhibition around that area. So we'll always try and um, have a training strategy acutely that will dampen pain down and allow them to function at a higher level. Um, and as we, as we go through our training processes, just having an understanding of what is causing provocation. You know, it, are, are we getting a provocation when we're getting into deep hip flexion? Okay, if that's the case, we have to adapt. We'll still be able to maybe do other things, maybe uh, work in different planes of motion that don't um, cause the, the provocation. So we'll work around it. And then just trying to make sure we maintain movement as well. So it's really, it's not necessarily about um, testing too much when we're in that acute kind of position. It's more about having good relationships and good communication lines between player, medical staff, S&C, trying to initiate some, some training strategies or exercises that might reduce dampen pain and then introducing movements that maintain function and increase activation. So that's really kind of the process. Super, super interesting. What's, what's next for you, mate, in terms of research-wise? And I mentioned that paper at the start, the neuromuscular status in hockey paper. We had a little chat beforehand. What what's next? Yeah, so we've me myself and um, and my colleague Dean Heim here. We've been working on a, a couple of uh, papers that we hope to sort of um, try to get into publication in the next sort of month or so, which around injury epidemiology in ice hockey, and uh, 
just some, uh, a paper identifying the, the physical demands of ice hockey as well. So we've been working on, on that for uh, about a year now. It's been really you know, great just to, just to condense all the, the literature about the sport and see what do we know about the sport and you know, what can we take from that in terms of the application for reducing injury risk around the hip and groin and what are the key factors for maximizing performance. So hopefully we're going we're gonna to sort of do something with those papers um, I'm, I'm currently super, really interested in actually uh, looking into the area of transfer and understanding, you know, looking at a lot of the neural adaptation research around how we improve early to late RFD in the gym, but how we can develop those whilst also maximizing transfer to performance. So that's actually an area that I'm trying to um, delve really deep into and, and, and um, understand a little bit further. I'm going to try and read... Um, the very dense but sort of very technical book from Franz Bosch, the uh, the integrative approach to strength and coordination. That's something I want to try and get my head around this year because I think I've seen you know a lot of that type of training has come into rugby union. So mm. uh, sort of you know, dynamic work with multiple coordination strategies. I want to try and understand that a little bit more. So that's certainly a project for me over the summer and seeing if there's anything I can take from that area and translate into the world of uh, ice hockey. I actually had John Pryor on the podcast, which, weirdly enough, it will have been out by the time this comes out, yeah. even though I've already spoke to him, <laughs> like, time machine. But, um, yeah, he was very much influenced by uh, Franz Bosch, because John's at the at the Wallabies yeah. Um, yeah. with Australia. So, yeah, really interesting. It, it is. Mind-blowing um, insight into how he's taken Franz's methods and integrated them into his system whilst still reflecting on what other people are doing and then referring back to his his how he views it and how Franz views it yeah really interesting uh little take from him 100 percent. yeah I, i've seen some of uh some of john's training videos with the wallabies yeah. and i've seen some of the, the brumbies videos and i know it's uh, it's becoming a you know an interesting area of rugby union training and how we can utilize the gym as, as, a, as a driver for you know primary adaptation around the neuromuscular system but then what trait what sort of coordination based exercise strategies have some transfer to the the multiple you know um, movement and mechanical demands of the game and, and I think that's definitely a the next big area for us to understand in in all team sports for sure just one last thing I spoke to Robin Thorpe about this and then as Joe Club as well how important is it for you to keep this academic thread running through your career? It's really critical. I, I, yeah. I believe that um, we're privileged enough to be in a position to work in a, an applied environment on a daily basis. Um, and in my view, the way that we can get better and improve is by you know, trying our hardest to understand what is, what is being talked about um, published and experimented with in the world of academia that can benefit us to the highest level in, in the world of applied sport. Now, what we're really good at in applied sport is the soft skills and the, the arts and having the relationships with the players to try and maximise engagement, maximise positive behaviours that support performance, having those relationships with coaching staff to try and filter information to them so they can make better decisions about our athletes on field or on ice performance, having relationships with the medical department so we can understand what they feel the athlete needs to incorporate to reduce the risk of injury. 
And so we spend a lot of time developing those skills and we're good at it. But I think a lot of the times it's, it's, it can be harder to try and have time to look at what the world of you know, academia is doing and, and, and understand that and then be able to um, talk to that world and into, you know, discuss with that world um, what you feel can be valuable from what is very technical but the small nuggets that can be impactful in the applied setting. And, and there is often just small amounts of, of, of information or application that can have an impact with elite athletes. But it's really important to make sure that you continue that thread um, because that's what's going to help you drive a better program. Um, and I think that I've, I have tried to expand my um, time that I spend in you know, understanding that world more as I've got older as a strength coach, as I've got sort of to a position where I feel I'm comfortable with how I communicate to different departments and players. I, I want to try and understand more of what's happening in the academic world that can have an impact with my athletes. So I, I do think it's an important thing that we should um, have a percentage of our weekly time focused on. Mm -hmm. Very similar to what Joe and uh, Robin said. So that's that's cool. Good to know. Anyone that wants to touch base with you, Ed, on anything that we've discussed or anything else for that matter, where's the best place to go? I know you said you're not a massive social media guy, but... Is there anywhere people can go? Yeah, I'm, I love email dialogue or you, you can contact me via email. So, Rob, feel, please feel free to, uh, to yep. give anyone my email. Yeah, I'm not, um, I'm not great on social media. I'm just not – I'm pretty lazy. I'm not great at engaging on social media. Mm -hmm. Nothing against it. Um, but I am on Twitter. I can't actually even remember my Twitter handle. But uh, I am also I'll on – I'll link to uh, it. Don't yeah, worry. if you link We're to it. Good. I'm also, <laughs> on, um, I'm also on, on Instagram as well. I think that's an easier handle. Um, but yeah, if, if you do um, contact me via those two methods, I will reply. I'm just, uh, yeah, just, just, just fairly poor at it. Email's the best bet for sure. Cool. Well, thanks, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you again. It's nice to have you in a more comfortable environment rather than in the, in the airport like last time. Well, but um, Yeah, it was cold then as well because it was Buffalo in February. So I think we were operating at around about minus five degrees in that airport, in that air hangar. So oh, yeah, wow. much more ambient temperature here for me now. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, yeah. it's been a pleasure to chat. Thank you for coming on again. Um, and we'll, we'll keep in touch and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Uh, great. Thanks, Rob. Always, always a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks again to Ed for giving up an hour, an hour and a half of his time to come on and share his wisdom. We've got a bit of a change of pace next week in next week's Pace Performance Podcast as we have two guests on from the area of speed training. So super, super excited to release that episode. So if you are interested in getting access to the best strength and conditioning coaches and best sports scientists every week on your phone or tablet, make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and it will drop free of charge onto your phone or tablet every Thursday morning. So thanks for tuning in again, and I will chat to you next week.